Hello and welcome to episode 85 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. A warm welcome to Roxanne M., Jessica R., and Michelle M. to the Modern Manager community. I am super psyched about some changes to the membership for 2020, the first of which is that the member forum is now on Slack. So when you join, you can ask questions to me and to your fellow community members, and we can all support each other to be Rockstar Managers. You can join and get access to that Slack community for as little as $2 a month, or you can choose the level that is right for you and get one-on-one coaching, join our group coaching calls, get episode guides and guest bonuses, and all kinds of other great stuff. And if you work for a nonprofit or government agency, email me and I will send you a code for 20% off of any membership level. Head on over to mamieks.com join to learn more. And just because I love when people share how the podcast and my coaching is helping them, I want you to hear directly from one member of the Modern Manager community. And here's what she had to say during one of our intimate group coaching calls. Over the past few months, I've implemented weekly reporting that relates to the questions that were covered in one of your podcast episodes, and then decided to set up a quarterly review cycle that would then lead into an annual review. My company doesn't have any performance review set up that we need to do, but I felt like it was important to be checking in with the people that I manage throughout the year. And... I think we even talked about these questions, the three questions that I want to tease each week, focusing on highlights, roadblocks, and then priorities or goals for the week ahead. So then I just used the same three questions looking back at the quarter. And it was amazing because people could look back at every week, their snapshot responses to find patterns and notice things that were important to them throughout the past three months. And I also was able to affirm them and the things that they had done well based on actual information and not just recency effect, which was lovely. So thank you. I would love to support you so you can have these types of transformational experiences along your manager journey. Again, go to mamieks.com slash join to learn more and stay tuned for more exciting updates to the membership this year. Now, today's guest is Steve Sisler. Steve is a behavioral analyst. He's also a speaker and author, and his consultation involves personality difference, leadership strategy, cultural differences, and temperament strategy. Working with clients in more than 18 countries, Steve gathers behavioral and attitudinal information on individuals within corporate settings and develops strategies for effective leadership, teamwork, and entrepreneurial success. Steve and I talk about a whole bunch of different dimensions around motivation and how to position your job and those that you hire so that the way you naturally think and work is what will make you successful in that role. You will hear about the sad reality of self-esteem and some simple things that you can do to be a rock star manager, and of course, what to avoid doing. Now, here's the conversation. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Thank you so much for joining me today, Stephen. I am excited to chat with you about all things motivation, psychology, just some fun stuff. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
So let's start with motivation because I often get asked questions around how do I motivate my team like to care about what we're doing or to get them to do the work or how do I motivate myself to do the things that I don't want to do? So let's start there because it's a, a big juicy topic. Well, workplace motivation, actually it's centered in reducing brain tension. So it's called tension reduction. And what that means is, let's say one of my motivators is power. I mean, this is based on the work of Edward Spranger and Gordon Alport that goes way back. If my motivation is power, then I don't feel, and when I say I don't feel, I mean in my brain, I don't feel comfortable unless I'm able to call the shots, own my space, and own everyone who's in my space. And that just means being very responsible, the buck stops here mentality. If I don't have that going on in my work, then I experience brain tension. And the only way to reduce the brain tension is to have something I can call my own. And then that tension is reduced. So people think some people are want to be in charge because they're, quote, control freaks. But really what they're doing is trying to reduce the brain tension that spawns from not being able to do what they want in a situation. Now, some people, they don't have that power need. And so they're looking to avoid any more responsibility than they have to have. And if too much responsibility is given to them, they start yielding their position to avoid controversies in that role. So what really motivates people is allowing people or being in a situation that allows you to be who you currently are in the way you think. And that's kind of what we do when we work with people. We figure out how they're wired and then what's the best environment for that type of brain. And then you don't have to work. You don't have to think. You just go there and be yourself and it tends to work. And there's seven different motivational orientations. And so that's pretty much how motivation works. So I don't need to motivate people that when the right brain is in the right environment because it's self-motivating. That makes a lot of sense that, right, it's about aligning people so that you don't have to get them to do something that they actually naturally want to do that. That's like, that sounds like magic. So what are these seven, what are these seven different motivators or, or themes around motivation? So one of the motivations is a original motivation. So it's originality. So being allowed in your space to be creative and original and have the right work-life balance. You know, some people work to live and some people live to work. And then there's everybody in between. So being able to strike a balance there is really helpful. So if you're not a creative person, then we say your feet are on the ground versus your head are in the clouds. So this is called real world thinkers. They're grounded, they're pragmatic in their thinking. So they have to be able to make pragmatic decisions. If you ask that person, hey, we're going to have an office painting party this week. Uh, They're (laughs) like, why? (laughs) Why are we doing that? But if you're original in your thinking, you're like, oh my God, that's going to be great. I know exactly what color I want my office to be. So those are the different types when it comes to that piece. The second piece is individualism. And so that's the need for freedom and autonomy to be able to do what I want, when I want, however I want, wearing whatever I want. Okay. That kind of thinker and free to express my own ideas. 
And people that are not motivated that way are super cooperative. They don't need the spotlight. They're not looking for the limelight. They hang back. So if I'm trying to promote that person, they may not like it, even though they might not tell you. That would be behavioral. Another one is efficiency. So people that are highly efficiently minded, they believe the quickest way from A to B is a straight line, while other people are zigzagging. So they have a heightened awareness of wasted time, wasted energy, wasted resources, wasted money, things like that. They look around and notice who's not pulling their own weight, things of that sort. People that are not motivated that way are very easily satisfied. And so they think credit cards is free money. (laughs) They just rack up the charges. They're paying more interest. They don't really realize it because they're not efficient in their thinking. They live in a world without clocks. So if you're trying to put that person in a position that's filled with certain deadlines, that's going to be a problem. There are people that are power motivated. I talked about that. They want authority equal to or greater than their responsibilities. There are people that are sacrificial in their thinking. And that means they're willing to sacrifice of their own in an effort to get somebody else what they need. And you got people that can be really powerful in this. And then some people that aren't. So people that are not motivated by sacrifice, they're always thinking, what am I getting out of this? And if they're not getting enough out of it, they don't want to do it. There are other people on the other end of that scale, if it's not costing them, you know, personally, they don't feel like they're helping. We call that the lose winner. So when I'm losing, but my loss causes a win for you, then I feel like I actually won. Uh, So anybody who's in a position like that, they feel good about who they are in the world and they're reducing their brain tension. Another one is regulation. So these people live in a black and white world. They believe there's only one way to skin a cat the right way. And so they draw very hard lines around their lives and they live within those lines. If they cross those lines, bells and whistles go off in their brain and they've got to reset. Then there are other people on the other end of that spectrum. They're very subversive. So they're thinking, nobody's going to tell me how to do this. So that black and white thinking is about how we believe things ought to be. So if you walk into an office, you're making prints all day or you're making copies and the copy machines in another room, you're thinking that copy machine should be in this room but it's not. That person, depending upon how the power is, will either move it or go by their own. But the people who are inefficient will just keep walking to the other room and talking to Susan. And so if they get, if they're allowed to do that, they'll feel good. And then the final one is theoretics. And this is about the need to know why. And you've probably run into these people. You go to Home Depot, you're looking for a particular item. You ask the floor person, do you know, do you guys sell these? And they say, oh yeah, aisle eight, all the way down on the left bottom shelf, we have about nine left. And then there's people that work at Home Depot for four years and don't even know they sell shovels. So it depends on how you're motivated and you're thinking that way. So what we do here at the Behavioral Resource Group is we measure people in all these areas and we say, you're going to fit perfect right here because this is how you already think. But if I've got to try to motivate you to think like you don't think, it doesn't work. It's that simple. Even though they spend billions of dollars trying to motivate people in companies, in the end, they're no more motivated than they were before. It's only if they align with what their brain likes that determines whether or whether or not you're going to get what you want out of those people. So I'm listening to you describe these different types of people and ways of thinking and motivation. And I can see myself clearly on one end of the spectrum for some and the other end of the spectrum for others. Do Mm -hmm. we all have all of these? It's just a matter of to what degree? Yes. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And what we've noticed over 16 years of measuring thousands and thousands of people, and we created this report called the IMO report, the Integrated Motivational Orientations. And what it shows us is three different things. People are either falling into a category of self-mastery, they fall into a category of freedom seeking, or they fall into a category of learning. And so we measure all three. So self-mastery are the people that tend to make the best leaders and managers because they're mastering what they do and they master everyone in their space. But if you're on the opposite end of self-mastery, you're a floater. You're basically getting into a canoe without a sail, without an oar and without a motor. So you're dependent on the current to where you're going to end up. And these are the people that are conflict avoidant. They settle for what they can get. They don't know how to fight for what they want. They want to be in charge, but they can't take charge and all these different things. And so once we figure out where people fall on the spectrum of motivation, then, you know, we're going to be able to tell that hiring manager, yeah, there's no way this is going to work. And here's why. And they avoid a lot of money being lost. How can I, if I'm a manager and I'm looking at my team and thinking about promoting someone or even for myself to reflect and say, like, am I someone who falls in that category? Are there behavioral signs that you can look for? Sure. So behavioral indicators or what we call observable indicators, you can watch somebody work. And then if you're me, you'll be able to figure out their behavioral profile because I'm a profiler. But if you're a manager, there are things you can look for. So one of them is taking initiative when you weren't told to take initiative. And then some people, you ask them, what happened? They well, it wasn't my fault. You know, they blame and deny. Typically, not good leadership material. But people who will see something that needs to be done, and even though it's not their job to do it, they will do it because it needs to be done, not because they're looking for the credit. So the best way to spot leaders is to find somebody leading and then give them the title to match what they're already doing. What most people do is give you a title and hope you can live up to it. So true. I mean, that's in large part why this podcast exists <laughs> is to help people figure out how to be a great manager, right? And uh, if you know, and not to say that people can't learn and grow because I think that's what we're mm-hmm. all trying to do. But it makes a lot of sense that if you have a natural inclination towards right. some of these things, that it's, you know, it seems more easy and obvious to put you into a position where you get to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, management is about looking at a group of human beings that you work with and coming up with a strategy to make them better or to help them become better at what they already do. Most managers, and you you may or may not believe this, but most managers are actually in management as a personal self-help program. In other words, being in charge makes me feel important. That's where most managers are. So their management is not about helping other people grow and put themselves out of a job so that the 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 department can run without them. It's controlling everybody in that role and withholding certain things from them so that you remain in charge of them. That's what most people do. That's not management. Do you know why is that? Is there something in your research that explains why people do that? Absolutely. 84.6% of the population has low self-esteem. 
And so being in charge of something makes you feel better about who you are. Wow. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Are there ways to address the self-esteem issue in your work? Yes, but that's not, oh, you have low self-esteem. Do this and it will be fixed. It's <laughs> not that simple. Most people, if you tell them, let's say you go over somebody's house and they make you a spaghetti dinner, male or female, doesn't matter at all. And you say, wow, this is the best sauce I've ever had. In their brain, they're either going to say, I know, or they're going to say, well, I probably should have added a little more oregano. The people that think it needs something more even though you just told them it was the best you ever had, are the people that have the lower self-esteem. And 84% of the people think they could have done something more to the sauce so that you would like it better. Really? I'm now thinking of all the dinner meals mm -hmm. that I cook because I, I have a dinner party almost every Friday night. And I always do that. People are like, this is delicious. And I'm mm -hmm. like, really? Because, you know, it's okay. It could have been better. <laughs> mm -hmm. You see, so that tells me you have no clue when it comes to your own value. So you can't even take somebody's word for it. Your brain is actually saying, listen, you don't know how terrible I, are, I really am. So let me inform you. You know, we see in three dimensions. So because we were the only animal with a neocortex, we live in a sense of third person. So, you know, I have to stop doing this to myself, like I and myself are two different people. And so you start having these inward conversations. Let me tell you why this, that, or the other. So if you go out to eat with somebody and then the check comes, the people with lower self-esteem want to pay the bill. And it's because they don't want to be seen as a mooch. Oh. But if you're not a mooch, why are you thinking you don't want to be seen as a mooch? It's because you think they're going to think you're mooching. Because you don't believe they really know who you are. And if they did, they wouldn't be eating dinner with you. We don't go through this process in our thinking. It's just what happens. So if you're a manager and you're thinking like that, it's not going to go very well. This is so fascinating because it, it makes me think about like the rationalization, right? Like I think about the other person's motivation of saying, this was really delicious because it's a formal nicety and that I am the only authentic critic of myself mm -hmm. that can have a true form of judgment. But that may not be the only way to read the situation is what I hear you saying. That's absolutely correct. And the people that have a better view of your value are living outside of you. And the people that have a lesser view of themselves live within themselves. So we call that the difference between being outer directed and inner directed. And we measure that. So you're likely outer directed. And what that means is you're relying on exterior sources and circumstances, which include people, things, and ideas about people and things, to let you know how you're doing. Whereas interdirected people, they don't need that feedback. They already know they're doing well. So clearly this isn't so easy since just about 15% of the population is thinking that way. Is there mm -hmm. your top tip of how do we start to shift that mindset? I'd say more than half of the people with low self-esteem need counseling. Mm. And I'm not being funny. It's actually true. I've worked with some people up to two years, but most of my work is a three-month stint of talking to them every week and giving them things to do to change their brain. Because your brain is a self-organizing patterning system, which means if I told you I'm going to place this cup on this 
X on the table. But before I do, I need you to draw for me what that might look like. Sketch it out. You're likely going to be pretty accurate. But if I said, I'm going to pour water into this tilted sandbox, but I want you to sketch the landscape it's going to make after I'm done pouring, you wouldn't be able to do it. And so your brain is like a sandbox. As circumstances in life take place within your mind, water, which is all the data coming from the outside world is being poured into your brain. And your brain is making rivers known as neural networks around how you perceive the world. And so most people celebrate defeat in their life. They don't celebrate victory. So if you tell them, oh, you're really great at that, they're thinking you're just saying that. So that's celebrating defeat because there's what you celebrate is what you think about. So they're thinking about what they didn't do or what you don't know. So there's no victory celebration there. So I teach people how to celebrate victory every day so that they get a brain change. It's like learning to play the piano. If you take lessons 15 minutes a day in two years, you can play a song. So same with the way you think about yourself in two years, you now think you're a hero. Now, if you think you're a hero and 84% of the people in the room don't think they're a hero, they think you're egotistical. Ah. So now you've got that problem. So people want to make this easy in the, in the world of consulting and Facebook tips on how to be a great manager. Just do this. And you'll see, if you look at the statistics, the amount of money poured into self-improvement in the workforce and the amount of fixed situations that come out, there, there really aren't any. <laughs> and that's because companies need to justify the money they spent. They don't verify if they spent it well, because then they have to fix it. And nobody wants to do that. I had a company pay me $87,000 and then didn't do one thing I said. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but then they're thinking, well, we, we got that checked off the list. Now we can re refill the budget for next year, right? So what do we do about that then? If, if none of these programs are, are sticking and the process itself to change your own mindset and understanding and self-confidence to find the right motivations for your colleagues, like if all of this is just so messy, what is a manager to do? Well, it's what every manager does. They get into work, they work until it doesn't work, and then they get another job. The average stay is two and a half to three years. That's what happens. It's broken. It's a broken system. And we talk about a lot of systems being broken. The school system's broken. The financial industry's broken. Like there's all these broken systems. But what human beings do is they live by trial and error. You got to remember, we're animals with a neocortex. You know, look at a kangaroo, a dog. What do they do? They do things until it doesn't work. And that's what we do, but we're more fancy at doing it. And so what we try to do is bring people to reality. So we go in there and we measure everybody and we say, you can say, here's your culture, but here's what it really is. Bob, you're selfish. Joan, you have no self-esteem at all. It's in, completely in the toilet. Jill, you're a starving artist. That's why you can't, you're not asking for the raise you deserve. And we just go through the line and everybody's standing there jaw dropped. And I said, you guys want to fix this? So word has gotten out about how we do this. So we're either the last resort or a shock. <laughs> <laughs> because we're not playing that dog and pony show. We're in it to actually win it. We're in it to help people. There's a book out. I didn't write it. Uh, I wish I did, but it's probably the best book on these subjects. It's called The Nine Lies About Work by Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall. And it's a free thinking leader's guide to the real world. In other words, people don't care what company they work for. They only care about who they work with. 
So all these companies like, here's why you need to work for our company. That's a waste of money and time. Because once they get in there, they're like, I hate this company. What are they saying? My manager's awful and treats me terrible, right? It's not about the company. It's about the company you keep, which is people. And so if you have a manager that you know cares about you, you will bend over backwards to meet that manager's needs. If you don't think that manager cares about you, you won't. So what are some of the things that managers do that make people feel cared for or invested in? Excellent question, because people want to be liked more than they want to be paid. (laughs) Okay. So if you worked for me and you performed, you know, performed a task and it was a good task and it got us the results we wanted. And then I came to you and said, listen, I just want to remark with you on what you just did here. And you did an excellent job. And you keep doing this kind of work. You're, you're likely going to have my job. And you know what? You can if you can get there. Now, what is that person going to do? Go home and wish they weren't working there? Or come back the next day figuring out a strategy to be better than they were yesterday? And the reason why they want to be better is because they were acknowledged for being good. You know, most managers do not recognize performance because they're trying to manage up. They're trying to keep their manager off their back. And then they beat the people into submitting to what they think that manager wants. It's just how it works. They call it dog eat dog. And that's if you watch any of these television shows, movies about, you know, the corporate world where people are getting hurled under the bus and all, this is the real world. Every human being does things for their reasons, not anybody else's. But what if you knew that about yourself and made an effort to change it, right? And so that's, that's what happens. So the best managers don't say, how am I doing? They look at their people and say, what do you need me to do? Imagine getting your people together and saying, what do you need me to do to be the best manager you ever had? And then you whiteboard it and you look at where you can make some changes so that your people can feel better about what they're doing and who they're doing it with and who they're doing it for. Now you're getting towards, you're getting, you're getting to the point where you're having a good team. And the best leaders are promoted from within, not brought in from without, because they're elevated by the group that they're a part of. So it's like, who, who sh- you know, when you go in and do games with teams, you know, people, they go in there and they do team games in an effort to build community and things like this. And this is what they do for a living. And so you'll watch a group and they'll say, Bob, you, need, you, you, you should be in charge. Like they already know who the best person for the job is, right? They already all corporately know, you know, we're going to give that job to you because they have functional authority in that job. Okay. So let's say you were hit by a car. You're laying on the street. You cannot feel your legs. The car is smoking and there's gasoline on the road. And a policeman shows up and he says, we need to move you. And you're like, "Uh, I can't feel my legs. That's a problem. I don't want you really touching me because of my spine. He says, well, we got to get you out of here. And then a gentleman rides up on a bicycle wearing sweats, all sweaty, 37 years old. And he says, do you need any help? I'm a spinal surgeon. Who's in charge now? The spinal surgeon. Well, if that policeman has low self-esteem, he'll say, I don't care who you are. You need to get on the other side of that yellow tape. See, this is what we have going on in companies. We got managers like that policeman 
and underlings like the guy on the bike, but he has no authority because he's threatening the well-being of the policeman who doesn't know what he's doing. And now no one respects that manager. All the people watching this play out do not respect the policeman because he didn't give the authority where it was due. And so in work, it's just human competition. But what if we weren't competing? We were completing. That would change everything. Now, who, who wants to do this? Well, I'll tell you right off, not many. <laughs> and this is why I'll never be out of work and neither will you. And so it's just human nature and we're in it and we're trying to fix it and we can only fix it to the degree that people will allow us. And that's it. Wow. There's so many good little nuggets in this conversation and I'm so sad to bring it to a close. But before we totally wrap up, I'm curious if there is a manager who you had the pleasure and privilege of working with and for at some point in your career that was just an awesome rock star manager that you want to give a shout out to? Oh my gosh. (laughs) So many over the last 16 years. Yeah. Well, you know, I have one that stands out, but I can't remember his name because it was a few years back, but his name was Steven. I remember his name was Steven. This goes back many years, but this stood out maybe because one of the first Burnses I dealt with. And they ended up nicknaming him the born again. That's how much he changed. And so what was happening with him was he kept his door shut. He was over several people. And when they came in to speak with him, he wouldn't even turn around and look at them. He would look at his screen and continue on what he was doing. And like he had eyes in the back of his head and people would leave feeling like he doesn't want to look at me. He doesn't like me. You know, this kind of thing. The problem was he was just super task oriented. So he was tasking. So he was all head and hands, no heart and mouth. So I met with him. I actually spent four hours with him. He changed so much, I got a letter from his wife. And he just didn't know it was happening. He was ignorant to the fact that the way people felt, because he's not a feeler, he's a doer. And so I told him, keep your door open. And when people come into your office, turn around in your chair and look at them. And as they're talking, nod when you agree. That's it. That's all I want you to do. That's what he did. And it changed his life. It changed the people that work there too. They even gave him a nickname, the born again. And all he did was pay attention. That was the only thing he changed. And people are like, what did you do? You know, what? And it's like, I didn't do anything. I just told him to keep the door open and to pay attention to people. That's it. And now people felt important. Now they wanted to work hard for him. When before, you know, they want to hit him in the parking lot with their car. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and what I particularly like about this story is that you gave him some behaviors to do. And I know that with my clients as well, that sometimes we have good intentions. We don't understand what to do, like what that actual, what it looks like in reality if we pay attention. Mm -hmm. So having those concrete behaviors are sometimes the easiest ways to, to be able to start to make those changes. So that's just awesome. Absolutely. And what human beings do is they judge everybody by their actions, but they judge themselves by their intentions. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. You see? So I intended to do that. Yeah, but you didn't. (laughs) Oh, yes. So it's really helpful when we point out to people where the gaps are in the behavior and in their, how they value the world. And so, you know, I wrote books on all this. They're pretty thorough. They're like 300 pages. But they talk about human behavior and the different behavior types and human motivation and the seven motivational orientations. 
and you can locate yourself in there and you're like, oh my God, that's why I do this. That's why I want that. That's why I'm not happy when this is going on. Well, this is a good place to stop. So why don't you tell us where people can learn more about you and your books and your work and all that good stuff? So behavioralresourcegroup.com or you just type into Google Stephen Sisler and there'll be plenty there. And if you type in Stephen Sisler into Amazon, you'll see the books. And I wrote a book called There's More to Management Than a Big Desk. And it's basically, if you're a difficult person and you're a manager, you should read the book because you've got a lot of blind spots and then you'll see them in the book because it's a story. But uh, but anyway, yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and learnings. I learned so much and I'm excited to learn more by reading all of your books now. So thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. That was quite a conversation. If you are as intrigued by Steve's work as I am, he has got lots of great content for free. And Steve has offered an incredible guest bonus. One member, drawn at random, will receive a full behavioral, motivational, and axiological analysis and a 90-minute debriefing. These tools will gather information about your brain type, communication type, motivational orientation, or what moves you, emotional consistencies, what emotions you rely on for decision-making, effective nature, default instincts, emotional needs, self-esteem, self-direction, practical thinking, structured thinking, work role awareness, etc., This is hundreds of dollars in value, and if you join before February 11th, you will be eligible. Plus, when you join, of course, you get all those other guest bonuses and episode guides. Go to mamieks.com slash join to learn more about membership levels and sign up today. As usual, all the links are in the show notes, and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter at mamieks.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team, I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.